Hi everyone, it's Charlie Webster here. I hope you're all doing okay and keeping safe. We're back with a new episode of My Sporty Mind as I speak to sports stars about their experiences with mental health and well-being to hopefully help open up the conversation of mental health to an everyday one. Well, today we're welcoming our second goalkeeper to the podcast. Our first ever episode featured Chris Kirkland. And now I'm delighted to be joined by former Wolves goalkeeper, Carl Akimi. Giving you a clap, Carl. Well, <laughs> Thank you very much. Sorry, yeah. was any, that was really poor. <laughs> That's better. Um, welcome along. How's life Thank looking you. for you at the moment? How are you doing? Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm good. Uh, I, I can't complain too much. Um, I know we're obviously in lockdown pretty much. And it, it was kind of easy to start off with because I kind of felt like I'd been in a lot worse positions and just for me to stay in my house wasn't that hard. But like it's starting to get a bit tedious now, I'm not going to lie, but and uh, I'd like to get out a bit more. But having said that, I've, I've spent a lot of time with my family, uh, more time than I have spent for probably since I was ill, really. So it's been it's been good. Yeah, I can't I can't really complain at all. How's your two daughters? Because... I think we can hear one of them. <laughs> That's the two-year-old. Yeah, she's um. Yeah, they're both they're both good as well. Uh, the two-year-old's always sort of causing some sort of trouble in the house, and uh, my oldest one, Mia, is just having a lesson now. So we just try to stay on top of her schoolwork because I think through me being in hospital a like, lot, she kind of missed out. So I, she's kind of just caught back up. So I don't really want her to fall back behind again. So. It's been all right. We've started to sort of go for walks a bit now to, for them to let a bit of steam off because we, we didn't go for a walk probably for about two months, to be honest, just to kind of stay stay away from everyone, really. Because my, um, my immune system's still low and I'm still in treatment, I just have to be careful about kind of being out and I was trying to, having to pick my times to walk. Well, I've only just started walking probably the last two weeks or so-ish. So I've just had to pick my, pick my times and stuff like that. What coping mechanisms do you use? Because you said that you've only been going for walks recently. I mean, I'm somebody that uses that as a coping mechanism. Is there been anything else that you've been using because you've not been able to go outside and maybe let off steam or, or release yeah. your exercise? I think I, I just felt like I was trying to use my time wisely in a sense. I, I think I went through like a bit of a lazy stage, which I didn't. Like I was waking up like late and stuff like that, which I didn't. I felt worse off for doing. But then I started to, uh, I started reading a bit more. Then I started to like grow vegetables and stuff like that. I felt like I just needed to give, like, occupy my mind with something. And I think that was kind of helping me just pass my day by and give me some sort of purpose. At the same time, I always kind of go back to kind of being in hospital, really. So any, a lot of the situations that I'm in, I'm always like, I always think it could, I could be a lot worse. I've been in a lot worse situations, so... Yeah, when you've been through something like that, I suppose it makes you think. Yeah, I always fall back on that. It was kind of, I kind of felt like when I was in hospital, all I ever wanted to be was in my house with the kids and I didn't really care about going out too much. So, But then at the same time, I, do, I did need something just to occupy my mind. So I started looking on YouTube and started growing vegetables, which some have been successful and some have been very unsuccessful. The <laughs> process. It's all about learning. Um, you mentioned about, about reading books. I was going to ask you about your vegetables, but I'll move on to, to books instead. Um, I've actually been reading your book, and it's brilliant. I've got it here with me. It's called Why Not Me? And you wrote that with Paul Berry, um, who's actually a friend of my friends. And it's really, really moving. And there's a lot I can relate to, I suppose, in it. But 
the first question I want to ask you is why did you call it why not me because I think the phrase that we know so well is why me yeah um because when I got diagnosed it was the first thing that kind of went through my mind like why me like I'm not like a bad person I'm not like an arsehole I don't treat people bad I don't try and hurt anybody I kind of felt like well why is this happening to me and then I think after the, the emotions um, after a couple of days and the upset I kind of felt like well why why not me like I'm so blessed in a lot of ways I had a great family I was sort of doing something I was playing football which I loved and I was at a good point in my life really and and even though I've had troubles in my life like a lot of people like things could have been a lot worse like and things are pretty good for me and relatively like successful so it always seems to bad things always seem to happen to people when they're on their knees already and um you always see bad things happen to countries like like in Africa, Thailand, and you sort of think, why is it always them that feel the pain when they're already sort of on their knees already? And like, that's kind of what I felt like, that I'm so blessed in so many other ways. And maybe, not that I deserved it, but why shouldn't it be me? It could be anyone, really. It's an interesting way to think about things, because I think when bad things do happen, we always try and we almost as if there should be a reason yeah. And I think we often think that it's not going to be us. Um, you said about when you were diagnosed, and um, for people that don't know, you were diagnosed with leukemia back in 2017. Um, if it's all right, because I know in your book you kind of really explain what it was like and, and the emotions going through your head, would you take us back to that moment and what, what it was like, what it felt like for you to be told that? Yeah, I'd had some tests from football, um, which kind of come back abnormal, and then went to see a, a, a haematologist, which is a, basically a doctor who specialises in blood, and had a few tests done, and then I had a scan done. That was kind of a bit of a worry, because I knew something was up, but I didn't expect this. And then um, I had a scan, and then it came back clear, my scan did. So I kind of... I felt something still wrong with me, but nothing too bad. And then I remember sort of just, I was buying some paint, I was having some work down at my house. And then um, then a doctor rang me up and he never said that I had cancer or anything like that. I just remember him speaking about Stan Petroff and uh, Jeff Thomas. And then as soon as he started speaking, saying that, he, was gonna, he said it's going to be a tough year for you and your family. As soon as he, he kind of said that, I just kind of sank of emotions, really. I felt like it was a death sentence handed to me. I remember sort of getting home and then trying to uh, ring my partner and I just couldn't get the words out of what I'd just been told. But she knew something was up and she eventually got home and then I told her the news, obviously, and then we was just crying. And she was heavily pregnant. She was due to give birth the following week. So that was, like, tough. Still, I still get a shiver down the spine even thinking about it now every time. And it was just tough for me taking the news of the diagnosis. And then it was just equally as tough, if not tougher, having to tell Sabah to start off with and then tell my mum and sister and my dad because it just shattered them. Like, my mum, like, turned like a ghost 
why it was a ghost and then my dad just didn't say anything that was probably that that was what was going through my mind on the way back from buying paint like how do I tell my mum and dad like I shouldn't I shouldn't have to say this to him and then I think it was just uh, unknowing of what was going on and I think until I kind of got close to starting my treatment there was just so many like different emotions going around in my head like I just my daughter didn't know what's going on obviously and she was just like, I was just kind of looking at her, sort of thinking, like, am I going to be here for you? And obviously I had another one coming as well. So it was just, uh, it was just, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, that sort of feeling of upset, hurt. And yeah, it, it just, it felt like a death sentence, to be honest. Where did you dig, what was it? Where did you dig from to help you get through that time? What, what went through your mind? What did you tell yourself? Uh, um, negative thoughts did creep in I'd read a lot before this kind of happened about I was quite going through like a bit of a spiritual journey before this happened and um, I was kind of reading a lot of Eckhart Tolle a lot of spiritual books Buddhism books and stuff like that so I was trying to get control of my mind anyway before this kind of happened that's interesting um, was there something that was a precursor of that like, yeah I, I was kind of prepared as best as I could be in the circumstances because I think maybe for two years, two or three years before that, I went through a stage of kind of not being angry as in angry towards people, but just had a lot of emotions piling up inside me. And um, I remember my partner asked me to get a book, Eckhart Tolle, Power of Now. It just kind of clicked that everything he was talking about, I do. Like I have conversations with myself on the on the on the drive back from from football training or wherever I'm going. Like I have arguments with people that I'm not gonna meet, and I'm picking a fight with somebody that I'm never gonna see in my life. And it, it was kind of them voices, them emotions, kind of it kind of helped me, kind of control them and see that it, it this conversation that you kind of having with yourself is it's not normal. <laughs> A lot of people, a lot of people do it and have the same conversations about something that's never going to happen, really. And I think it's I, more normal than you think. <laughs> yeah, it is very normal. And, I think I do uh, that I'm too. A, it's almost I'm like that, a, those two voices in your head and one's having a go at you and putting you down and the other one's trying to argue back with it. Yeah, there was one, there's, a, there's someone inside you saying it'd be all right and then there's, it, it's just like back and forth and I was experiencing that a lot, I think, as well with sort of football pressures of football is always you're always on this stage of questioning yourself backing yourself and and a lot of other emotions so I was kind of going through that sort of stage in a, in a spiritual sort of stage anyway so I was um it did help me reading them books in hindsight because I was in a better place to control my emotions uh, a little bit more and when I was in hospital on my own a lot I kind of felt like I left it down to like destiny a little bit. I was trying to do everything I can, whatever I could control, I'd control. So the only thing I could really control was what I was eating. And that was kind of another thing, which might be just a makeup of me really, is that if I can do something to keep my mind occupied, it feels like I'm in, like I can control or maybe influence itself. So I was trying to control what I was eating and that kind of gave me the basis to fight. And it was, it, I think football kind of did help in that because you're always trying to aim for them small percentages and that was the small percentage that I kind of felt that might 
give me a better chance. Um, but there was nights as well where I'd just be laying there, especially at night, I think, before I'd just becoming mad, it'd be like, uh, you, you might die. And then I'd let that voice talk, but just knowing that I'm listening to it and I'm aware of what's going on. And when when I was aware of it, I could kind of cope with it and kind of let it, like, listen, listen to what it was. I, I felt like when, when I tried to shut it off and try and just shun it to a side. I felt like it could come back stronger, but when I just actually listened to the voice in my head, listened to what it was saying, and then gradually kind of pushed it to the side and kind of said, what will happen will happen. You're on your own path. That did help me through them kind of lonely, lonely nights. A psychologist Carl once described to me that about that voice as if like you, it's exactly what you just said, don't go into battle with it because it will yeah. always just get louder and it'll just take you down. But to just almost go, oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. Stupid voice, yeah. but I know. Yeah. I know what you are and I know what you're saying and I know you're probably scared and you're trying to protect me. But, you know, I recognise what you are, but also I believe that I'm going to be all right. And it yeah. kind of like put it like that. And then it made, yeah, it made you go, oh, okay, rather than going, don't tell me that. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to do this. And yeah. I am good enough and... Yeah, is that is exactly what you said. It was like that. Going back to um, the book that I read, Eckhart Tolle was on the tube or the bus. Someone was speaking out loud, and everyone acts like they're crazy because they're speaking out loud. But we're speaking in our head anyway. So what is the actual difference? But he follow, ended up following, following the person, and then the person was a professor in the university. So it shows that everyone's got that voice, haven't they? And uh, it's just about controlling, controlling that. And I think that's what helped me, um, helped me through some of them, them nights. And I think that awareness does kind of give me a method of coping with whatever emotions kind of come up at times. And to me, sometimes where the emotions did get their strong, I just kind of let them take over me. So if I felt upset, I'd accept that I felt upset. And I wouldn't try and fight it. I'd just allow myself to be upset, and instead of the back and forth, I just, I just, it was, it was quite clear, really. And I think the, the thing about being in that situation, things become very clear. It's kind of like a bit of an awakening. I was just seeing what was clear in life. I knew what was important in life, and that was, that's the greatest gift that's kind of come out of it. And I, a lot at the time through the treatment, I always felt that. If I do come through this, this could be the greatest lesson that I've ever had in my life. What did it strip away from you for you then? What did it, what did it hone in as clarity that was important to you, and what message do you think that was moving it, forward? It, it was just uh, with the sort of football, everything else that kind of goes in life, ego, the having to try and impress people, the petty arguments that kind of happen just with random people or with, or with even with friends and family. It just, it just wasn't important. It didn't matter. All I actually wanted to do was spend time with my family and my close friends. And it showed some of the things that I was chasing wasn't really that important. Because when it kind of, everything kind of gets stripped back, all, all I actually wanted was to spend time with my family and there's so many times where I could have spent time with my family but chose to let some steam off by going out going out to the pub or something or be arguing with someone at football or I'd be constant a constant battle with 
change something going on a change room or other outer aspects that were kind of going on in my life and it kind of just, get, just got stripped back to okay then these are this is my fam my close family these are my close friends I've got other people that are, are friends as well but they're not really that invested in me to be honest and I'm, I'm not really that invested in them and it kind of stripped that back stripped back people that would take my energy away and train my energy and um, I kind of just felt that it was a lot of sort of black, everything was black and white now and I can kind of see clearly what's my best interest and what's best for me being happy really and uh, that's what kind of in it all kind of brought out really. It does change you in that sense and does make you see a lot clearly when you go through trauma, whatever um, trauma that may be. If I said to you acceptance, would you say that's a big part of what you did? Yeah, I remember I obviously was in bed a lot. I was watching a lot of TV and I never realised how many cancer adverts were on TV. And um, every time I heard the word cancer, I'd shudder, I'd shudder. I didn't like hearing a word for some reason. And then I remember sort of maybe six months into it, kind of thinking, well, why does that, why does that word scare me so much? And that was another thing that I had to kind of deal with was the word cancer because it did scare me for, for some reason it brought like a bit of a shot it made me feel weird when someone said said cancer and it was kind of just accepting the fact that it did bother me the, the, the word cancer and the going for the treatment sometimes did bother me but I had to accept that it was it was a part of the process and that's a lot of the nights where I had a lot of time I'm on my own. I think I was accepting the process of what was going on and I kind of had to believe that this was all a process and that I would come out of it. And how much do you think your survival was down to your mind and mental strength? Um, because I do love how your cousin, Charles Venn, writes your foreword. And it's, re <laughs> it's really moving, um, but he also talks about how your, your family, your warriors in spirit, mind and body, and talks about your Nigerian heritage, about how you, you know, it's that thing where you make the most of opportunities and to, yeah. be, to be the best of me. You're smiling now when I say yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, how much, can you tell us more about that and how much do you think it was down to also mental strength and, and your heritage? Yeah, I think even in football, I always felt like my biggest asset was my mind because I had, for some reason, I had the ability to keep pushing, even if I didn't, even, no, I didn't mind it at times, I'd be able to break that barrier. And I think with Nigerian heritage and Nigerian family, I think we're quite, um, you always get taught from a young age that, like like my cousin was saying, you're, you're a warrior, you, you come from king's blood, I remember dad saying it, it still makes you laugh now. Uh, like it's always kind of almost that you're special in a way you are special and um it's always kind of stuck with me throughout my life and I find myself now saying the same to my daughters <laughs> that, that my dad used to say to me and I kind of like it was kind of you've got warriors blood <laughs> yeah you're warriors um and I always, uh, like my dad has always reminded me of it and um it was always a uh, or the forefront of my mind and I was, I was just proud people I think and um, 
it, it was just a part of the makeup that kind of probably molded molded me I think but at the same time my mum mum's a strong woman and my nan's a strong woman as well and they're tough tough women and um I think that kind of makeup as a child and a teenager kind of coming up um did probably mold me as a person really to sort of have that kind of mindset to be honest of just giving 100% and giving that 100% kind of ended up making my mind stronger as well and I started to believe that I could do more because I never actually thought that I was gonna make it to be honest and I think when I kind of got to 16, 17 and then I started seeing what other people were doing I just started to do more and I think that kind of mindset kind of just grew and made mistakes in various ways but I just always tried to learn from it and always kind of always knew it was important really and I remember by, I, I brought I brought like a book about mindfulness when I was about 21, 22 I didn't end up reading it but I was, it was always kind of been I always knew it was important to kind of drive me in whatever I was doing How much do you think that plays in your career then as a footballer? With being in football it's just full of ego everywhere and not in a not always in a bad way but I actually I actually tried to when I was going through my whole spiritual stage I actually tried to just not have an ego in football and not uh, not obviously around the building but actually on the pitch I tried to just be calm and zen and I kind of felt like it didn't work for me I felt like I needed that kind of alter ego to actually perform I needed that bit of aggression I needed a bit of this and I got in a stage where I could leave that on the pitch and kind of come out but it all it all kind of benefited in a way and I wish that I could teach it to a younger kid now and without and maybe going through different stages and different thought processes um, just to try and strip back that ego because it's, it's really kind of not needed. Everyone has an ego to a degree but I just think as soon as you kind of let go of it a little bit it, it takes a lot of problems away in your life that just not really necessary. That's it, that's it. I like that. You know, if you always got an ego, you always got your back up. You could be going to the shop to buy something. You end up arguing with someone for for what like no reason. I'm arguing with someone like about nothing really. It always escalates, and then it always kind of comes back on you. Because then you've got to deal with those emotions that you just had from an argument that you might not have had if you had didn't have your back up. And then I think it it, it just kind of keeps it keeps kind of spiraling um, until you you're in a, a more unhappy place. It can be exhausting, I think, as well. Um, how do you feel about football now, then, and where you are now in your life? Because was there ever, I don't know, any anger that you worked so hard to get there and then you then you retired early? Um, no, um, I'm not. I'm not sounding like a monk or anything like that. But I just I was at the stage when I finished. I'd I'd obviously been through a lot of trauma, and football wasn't really that important to me anymore. Um, I was supposed to go to the World Cup with Nigeria. That's the only thing that kind of niggled at me, to be honest. But the sort of finishing the career early, the only thing that really upset me was what it took to get there and the sacrifices my mum and dad made. The catching two buses and a train just to get to train and the lifts that I'd kind of got there. The, my dad having to scrimp lifts off people to try and get me to train at times. My friends, mum and dad dropping me to training because we didn't have the car or we didn't have the means for it, really. Um... It, it was that that kind of upset me that the sacrifices that kind of got in and got me to get to that stage and kind of what had been put in for me to 
succeed really because now I've got kids of my own as well. I'd like them Sunday mornings in in the snow and wet and everything like that. And it obviously in the training sessions it 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 would have been difficult, you know. And that my mum and dad's not in a as fortunate position as I was in, so it was that that kind of upset me about retiring. Um, not the actual retiring early and I was felt like fortunate that I'd played 10, 12 years of football before that so I'd kind of got to live my dream to a sense anyway and I was at a stage where I kind of realised the pressure that kind of football brings. I kind of realised as well that it wasn't, we kind of messed up in the head a little bit really like as, as footballers. Just the thought process that kind of go through your head at times and the sort of pressure and it's not necessarily pressure from the crowd it's the pressure that you put on yourself the pressure in the building and I'm not uh, I'm not saying it's bad and I'm not saying I didn't love every minute of my football career because I, I, I did it's the constant pressure of having to perform every day it's worrying about the game on Saturday worrying about what happened on the game on Saturday like going up for lunch and thinking she'll have a, that piece of bread or not and it was just a constant like body fats being taken every every other week it's, it's just constant even and even though it's normal when you're playing and it's not something that I didn't really think about it when you actually stop you sort of think oh, that's a bit weird you know why are you worried about having a piece of bread after training uh, why are you thinking this hard about why, why on Friday night am I thinking like what can go wrong in the game and having that battle with myself and it was all different emotions kind of leading up to the games at times and it wasn't like I could just have a bad day at training and it'd be alright, it never was alright really. I sound like I'm moaning about it, I'm really not. It's just that when I actually when I've actually come out of it now, I actually realised that it was a lot of times and I I do it in a heartbeat but I realised that I'm a lot more relaxed and calmer as a person for not actually playing anymore. And uh, I think it's only when it kinda comes to the match day, sometimes when I've been to a few of the Wolves games, that, that buzz at the stadium, I miss that. I miss that winning feeling at times. And that's kind of a miss. And I, I do kind of... It's nice to be a part of something as, a, as in a team. But it's also nice to kind of have your Friday nights at home with your family and uh, enjoy weekends maybe have a curry on a Friday night, I never had a curry on a Friday night and stuff like that, not really worry about it. So it was also, um, there's two sides to it and like I said, I did love every minute of it but I realised the kind of pressure that I kind of put on myself as well from actually being involved in, in football and playing. Carl, what do you think is the biggest thing that you've learned through all of your journey with football, with your early life? Because um, I know at points it was a struggle, you were, you know, you're not from... You're from a lower income family yeah. um, and from, you know, your battle with leukaemia. What's the biggest thing you think you've learned? I feel like I'm always learning about life. I feel like it always constantly evolves. There's, there's so many like different stages of life and kind of what I've been through in, in a good and bad way. I see the process in all of it and I see the relevance in working hard and pushing towards a goal and trying to improve, trying to reach that top standard I think there's there's relevance in that as well because we all want to achieve our goals we all want to do what we can in life but I think through everything that I've kind of been through in life I think the biggest lesson for me is 
probably controlling my ego, even growing up, troubles growing up or whatever. Um, so seeing certain things in the council estate and it was just normal for people to fight and for people to react that way. And then when actually stripped back, I realised it's not normal. A lot of 90% of the population don't think that's normal to, to just be fighting over nothing. Ego in whatever, in football-wise, even though I was always very humble, so I can't say I had a bad ego, but even towards being in football um, and games and stuff like that, ego in relationship arguments your ego can get in the way of a lot of things and uh kind of uh i feel like maybe maybe that was my biggest lesson in life maybe controlling my ego and can and trying to be at peace as much as i can with myself and also the mindfulness as well of being mindful and being aware of what's going going on in in my life around me with other people because i feel like we we can achieve anything really like physically or or any with talent wise but I feel like you're never really gonna truly be at peace until you kinda get your mind in in some sort of order or or find some sort of peace with yourself and that doesn't mean that I never get angry or I never snap. I just think it, it just means that I'm aware of when I actually do it and I'm aware that if I'm not alright I'm not alright and that's okay as well so I feel like that's kind of that. That's my probably biggest message and my biggest thing that I've learned. To be honest, and I, I, I and I'm not even scratched the surface of what I've, I could have learned and what I hopefully will learn throughout the rest of my life, really. And perseverance as well. I think they were the biggest three factors of what I'd actually ever. If someone ever asked me what were the most important things in my life, I think it'd be ego, mindfulness, and perseverance. Yeah. I definitely agree with those. And to finish, do you mind if I um, read a couple of sentences from your book, Why Not Me? But actually, not your thoughts, but Saba, your partner's thoughts. And I think it's really powerful what she says. She says, my message to anybody who has to cope with cancer in the family is to stay hopeful. Even when it seems there is no hope, miracles happen. I truly believe that Carl's mentality helps him cure cancer. He had us as his driving force and support system. If you have the right mind frame, you have the best chance of beating anything. There is an end to everything, and a day will come when you will feel better than today. Whatever helps you to get through it, keep doing it. Mine was being productive and giving Carl my good positive energy because I felt I was curing him in my own little way. It's really powerful what she wrote. Um, So what would your thoughts be and message be to anybody that's struggling out there right now? Yeah, my main message would be probably similar to what she's actually wrote to Anna, to have hope. Because I think hope is the biggest thing that kind of gets us through our our situation, our current, whether it's depression, anxiety, uh, any disorders. I think to have hope in it actually that one day it will be better and things will improve. And I think having hope and a, a dream or a, a sense of where you could be after your bout of whatever you're going through at the time I think if you can have that vision of kind of where you actually want to be and have that as your driving force the hope that you will be there I think hope is probably the main driving factor in everything I can probably hear my kids screaming now. <laughs> which one was that the youngest one's got to be right yeah, the youngest one again I'll see yeah. <laughs> uh, they're like let me in <laughs> <laughs> 
I've got hope. Let me in the room. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'll let you go, but thank you. I think that's a really nice message to finish on. Um, and I don't want them knocking the door down. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks so much, Carl. Really, really appreciate your time. And it's been so powerful to speak to you. Thanks so much for sharing. Um, you know, thank if anybody wants much. to buy your book, do you want to give it a shout? <laughs> I'm holding it up right now. You're looking at your own face on the front cover. <laughs> I think everyone should buy Carl's book it's really brilliantly written with Paul Berry and I'm very very inspiring and very moving no matter what what you've been through thank you very much that was a great endorsement thank you <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much Carl thank you very much massive, massive thank thanks you. and remember if you are struggling please think about reaching out maybe a trusted person or it doesn't have to be a family or friend both myself and Carl were talking about that there is support out there with charities such as the Samaritans and Mind and also the NHS line, which is 111, is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you can also contact me on social media as well. Um, keep safe and take care and we'll speak again soon.